Today marks the release of video footage showing how a police traffic stop in Memphis for suspicion of reckless driving led to the death of Tyree Nichols. Five now former police officers have been charged with second-degree murder. It's Friday, January 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. With egg prices increasing in the U.S., some people are crossing the border to buy them in Mexico. And Customs and Border Protection officials have been cracking down. The main reason we're here is to prevent the entry of plant diseases and, of course, animal diseases. Also, an Israeli documentary examines what happened to one seaside Palestinian village in the 1948 war. And a study involving prairie voles suggests that oxytocin may not live up to its billing as a love hormone. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Authorities in Memphis, Tennessee are bracing the public for what it will see in a few hours in body camera footage that captured the violent confrontation between five police officers and black motorist Tyree Nichols. The chief of police, whose department fired the officers last week, warned on CNN that the video shows a disregard for life, acts that defy humanity. Officials are anticipating protests in Memphis and other major cities. They're imploring demonstrators not to let their outrage over repeated cases of police brutality against black men turn into violence. Tyree Nichols' mother, Ravon Wells is also calling for calm. She told reporters today she has not seen the video, but knows it's horrific. She says the officers not only disgraced the community by their alleged actions. You also disgraced your own families when you did this. But you know what? I'm going to pray for you and your families. The officers, all of whom are black, are charged with second-degree murder and a litany of other crimes. Authorities say they have been unable to substantiate claims that reckless driving by Nichols prompted the traffic stop. The Biden administration says it is deeply concerned about escalating violence in the West Bank and Israel. And as NPR's Asma Khalid reports, it's urging calm. This week, Israel launched one of its deadliest operations in the West Bank in recent years. It says it was targeting militants, but at least one civilian is also reported to have died. Today, Israeli police say a Palestinian gunman killed seven people and wounded others gathered for the Sabbath outside a Jerusalem synagogue. John Kirby, a spokesman with Biden's National Security Council, says the U.S. recognizes the security challenges in the region, but also says there is an urgent need to de-escalate the situation. Over the past few days, the administration has been uh, closely engaged with both the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority on this recent violence um, and have been urging de-escalation. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling to the region this coming week and will reiterate this message in person. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. The administration is trying to promote more trade in the Western Hemisphere by launching what's called the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity. Details from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and Environment, Jose Fernandez, is setting out some ambitious goals to fight corruption and improve the business climate in Latin American countries to facilitate more trade and investment. This is how we become much more competitive as a region. Uh, it's how we take advantage of our history, our geography, our, our common heritage. He says this is not just about competing with China, but the U.S. does want what he calls a level playing field in the region. Fernandez says he's working with countries to make sure their people benefit from mineral resources. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says she expects that the video that shows the police beating of Tyree Nichols in Memphis will be horrific and will cause pain and grief for many people in Massachusetts. Police in Tennessee plan to release the video this evening. Nichols died three days after he was assaulted during a traffic stop. The five police officers charged with murder and his death were fired. Healy calls this a tragic moment in the U.S. I think it's important for us to come together in Massachusetts, uh, be strong in standing against police brutality and police violence, um, supporting one another and recognizing that this is a moment where people are going to need to grieve and also to heal. Healy says this is a time for people in Massachusetts to show care, empathy, and love. East Bridgewater and Halifax are dealing with flooding. After a dam broke in Halifax, Pond Street is closed in the area of the town line between those two communities because it's covered by high water. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is aiding in recovery efforts alongside local first responders. Officials say they do not know yet what caused the dam to break. The entire region has had above-average rainfall this month. Congresswoman Lori Trahan is the new co-chair of the Congressional Cambodia Caucus. She represents Lowell, which is one of the biggest Cambodian communities in the U.S. She's taking over for the co-founder of the caucus who did not run for re-election last year. If you're a fan of sledding and are looking to take your skills to the next level, then you might think about trying Luge. WBUR's Samantha Kutsia has more about this weekend's free event in Massachusetts. Wachusett Mountain in Princeton is hosting its annual Norton Luge Challenge this weekend. The challenge will introduce people to the sport of high-speed sledding. The event is really designed for anybody and there's no experience needed. You know, if you think about it, not many people have luge experience. That's Gordy Shear. He's a luge Olympic medalist, and he's going to be teaching kids how to navigate the sleds. You'll expect to have fun and really gain an understanding for what's involved with luge. And you get to see a sled, you know, like an actual competition sled. Really, it's it's a learning opportunity and a chance to experience it all in one. Anyone 10 years or older can participate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. It is 42 degrees in Boston. The low tonight dropping to about 30. And tomorrow, a cloudy start for your Saturday. Then clearing and highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The city of Memphis is bracing for the release of videos that show the beating of black motorist Tyree Nichols by five now former police officers. The officers, all of whom are black, have been charged with second-degree murder, among other charges, and law enforcement officials say what the videos show is inhumane. WKNO's Katie Reardon is in Memphis covering the case. Katie, uh, what's going on in the city right now? What's the feeling there? Yeah, people are grieving and in pain. There's a sense of weariness that people have to go through this, that a traffic stop from what the officer said was reckless driving has come to this. There's also a sense of frustration, and I think that people are just dreading seeing this footage. Uh, Nichols' mother, Ravon Wells, said today she's not watched all of the video and warned people, children, not to let their kids watch it. And a lot of people are saying that. There was a press conference today with the Nichols family and their attorneys. What'd they say? 
Attorney Ben Crump said he's never seen such swift justice like he has in this case against these officers. And he said how authorities have handled this case has really created a new model. Here, we can listen to what he said. We have a precedent that has been set here in Memphis. And we intend to hold this blueprint for all America from this day forward. Crump also said that the only way to get justice for Tyree is to call out what he said is an institutionalized police culture. And another attorney for the family said special units like the one that stopped Tyree should be disbanded. Memphis's police chief has already called for an independent review of that unit. And Tyree's stepdad, Rodney Wells, said he's pleased with the second degree murder charges. Tyree's mom said she really hasn't had time to grieve yet, but she knows Tyree is smiling down. He always said he was gonna be famous one day. I didn't know this is how he was going to, this is what he meant. Now let's talk about that footage that is scheduled to be released sometime this evening. Law enforcement officials and attorneys who've seen it have called it appalling and inhumane. What more can you tell us about it? Well, we know it'll be body cam and other surveillance footage. The video will be uploaded to YouTube in four parts, according to the Memphis Police Department. When it'll be released is not totally clear, but sometime around 6 p.m. Central. Memphis's uh, police chief, C.J. Davis, told CNN Today that she saw some of the video the morning after the incident and that she's never witnessed anything like it. You're going to see acts that defy humanity and a level of physical interaction that is above and beyond what is required in law enforcement. And I'm sure that individuals watching will feel what the family felt. And if you don't, you're not a human being. And we all are human beings. She said the officer's aggression is just unexplainable. They were riled up from the start and it just increased from there. Now, the parents of Tyree Nichols, along with law enforcement, have repeatedly called for peaceful protests once the videos are out. What can you tell us about plans for protests in Memphis? The city has been bracing since the officers were fired a week ago. With the timing of the release this evening, people have had had time to leave downtown and go home for the weekend. Schools in Memphis have canceled all of their activities this afternoon, and other cities across the country are also getting ready for tonight, just in case. Uh, during this afternoon's press conference, Rodney Wells again cautioned against violence and said that he didn't want any kind of uproar. Please, please, protest, but protest safely. So we'll be watching for people's reactions when the footage comes out. That is WKNO's Katie Reardon, who is going to be following what happens after that video is released this evening. Katie, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. Whether it's toilet paper during the pandemic or cheaper gas or most recently eggs, when goods become scarce or expensive here in the U.S., many people cross the border to shop in Mexico. But it is illegal to bring eggs from Mexico into the United States. As KTEP's Angela Cocherga reports, Customs and Border Protection officials have been cracking down. Hundreds of people wait in long lines at this border crossing between Juarez and El Paso, Texas. After U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers check immigration documents, they ask people if they're bringing anything from Mexico, including food. CBP officers have recently started asking everyone about eggs because they've seen a spike in the number of people trying to bring them across the border. 
border. Charles Payne is the agriculture supervisor at the Port of El Paso. The main reason we're here is to prevent the entry of insects, plant diseases, and of course animal diseases. Raw eggs can carry disease. The U.S. is already coping with its own outbreak of avian flu. That's led to a shortage of hens, higher prices, and more people trying to bring in less expensive eggs from Mexico. So the fact that we're seeing so much more, we're assuming is a direct relation to the price that they're paying in the United States. It's like crazy. Brittany Betta says she can't believe the price of eggs. She was loading groceries in her car outside a supermarket in El Paso, where a family-sized carton of 18 eggs costs about $9. And so many families, you know, depend on the eggs, you know, for protein when they can't afford, like, poultry or beef or fish, you know? So, yeah, it's hard. By comparison, across the border in Juarez, eggs are about half the price. In this supermarket, there's a giant display of neatly stacked trays of gleaming white eggs. Socorro Chavez grabs one for her cart. She says eggs are cheaper here than in El Paso, but you can't take them across the border. Though eye-catching displays like this one have enticed some to try. Along the southern border, CBP has stopped more than 2,000 people from bringing eggs into the U.S. since November. That's more than four times what they saw during the same period the previous year. Individuals risk being fined up to $300. You bringing back anything with you from Mexico? Back at the El Paso crossing, CBP Agriculture Supervisor Payne says trained dogs help sniff out food people routinely try to smuggle into the country. We get a lot of bologna coming through the ports of entry, as well as things like pork chorizo, ham lunch meats. Uh, we get a lot of fruit, uh, oranges, apples, mangoes, guavas. And avocados. CBP officers expect to see more of those coming from Mexico ahead of the Super Bowl when avocado consumption surges. People are allowed to bring them across if they remove the seed, which can harbor pests which means you better make that guacamole quickly before the avocados turn brown. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. It's known as the love hormone, but a new study suggests that label is misleading. NPR's John Hamilton reports on what scientists are learning about oxytocin. When romance is in the air, a couple's oxytocin levels rise. That's true for both people and prairie voles, mouse-like rodents that mate for life and are often used to study human behavior. Dr. Dave Manoli, a psychiatrist at the University of California, San Francisco, says prairie vole couples share a nest and even co-parent. One of the behaviors that's really, you know, sort of the most adorable is this huddling behavior, just sort of huddling with each other. They'll sometimes groom, sometimes they just fall asleep because it's very calming, and, and that's very specific to the pair-bonded partner. Decades of research has suggested that oxytocin is critical to that sort of behavior. So Manoli and a team of scientists did an experiment designed to disrupt pair-bonding. They removed fertilized eggs from female prairie voles and edited the genes to neutralize the effects of oxytocin. After that, Manoli says, they let the cells grow. So we culture them for a few days and then put them into what's called a pseudo-pregnant female. An animal that's hormonally ready to carry an embryo. The result was pups that appeared normal. And when these pups grew up, they formed pair bonds, just like other prairie voles. Manoli says females were even able to produce milk for their offspring, a process usually mediated by oxytocin. We were shocked. 
because that was really, really not what we expected. And, you know, my initial response was, okay, we have to do this three more times because we need to be sure that this is 100% real, but also what's going on. Repeated experiments confirm the finding, which appears in the journal Neuron. Manoli says it's still a mystery how pair bonding occurs in the absence of oxytocin, but he says the study makes one thing clear. Because of evolution, the parts of the brain and the circuitry that are responsible for pair bond formation don't really rely on oxytocin. They don't need it. In other words, Manoli says... Oxytocin might be love potion number nine, but one through eight are still in play, right? There's more there than, than that one entry point. Manoli says in retrospect, the result makes sense because pair bonding is essential to a prairie vole's survival. And evolution tends to favor redundant systems for critical behaviors. He says the result also may help explain why giving oxytocin to children with autism spectrum disorder doesn't reliably improve their social functioning. There's not a single pathway, but rather these complex behaviors have really complicated genetics and complicated neural mechanisms. Many scientists who study oxytocin say they're uncomfortable with the term love hormone. Sue Carter of the University of Virginia and Indiana University helped discover the link between oxytocin and monogamy in prairie voles, but she says she never assumed the hormone was acting alone. The process of forming a secure social bond, lasting for a very long period of time, is too important to restrict to a single molecule. Carter says a different molecule called vasopressin also contributes to social bonding. And there may be others, she says, though she believes oxytocin is the major player. We can live without fine clothing. We can even live without too much physical protection, but we cannot live without love. Which may be the reason we can love without oxytocin. John Hamilton, NPR News. Can't take it back once it's been set in motion You know I need you for the oxytocin If you find it hard to swallow I can loosen up your collar Cause as long as you're still breathing Don't you even think of it's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up, former President Trump's holding a rally tomorrow in South Carolina where his support may not be what it once was. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. On Wall Street, today stocks closed up. The Dow closed up 28 points at 33,978. NASDAQ finished the day up 109 points at 11,621. The S&P 500 closed up 10 points at 4070. Checking other business news, Boston-based Eastern Bank may close its branches in the near future. The bank said today it's taking measures to cut expenses despite earning higher profits last year. Eastern Bank says it expects the economy to soften this year. The bank has more than 120 branches across Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. Almost three-quarters of those branches are in Massachusetts. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at cambridgenaturals.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It is 42 degrees in Boston, a low around 30 degrees tonight. Tomorrow, some sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. Sunday, some clouds and highs in the upper 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Living, a new film directed by Oliver Hermanis, starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing select cities. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The War of 1948 is understood in two different ways. For Israelis, it's the War of Independence. For Palestinians, it's the beginning of Nakba, the catastrophe. Tantura is a new Israeli documentary challenging Israel's understanding of the war. It looks at what happened in a Palestinian village called Tantura, and it's prompted pushback from some Israelis and calls for justice from Palestinians. NPR's Alina Mohammed reports. It was the night of the 22nd of May, 1948, when the Alexanderoni Brigade's 33rd Battalion of what would become the Israeli military entered Tantura. Rashid al-Ahmar, who was 18 at the time, recalled what happened in a 2015 interview for a Jordanian TV channel. She was sleeping in her home when she awoke to heavy gunfire and people screaming. There was a short battle between the Israeli troops and villagers. Al-Ama says she witnessed the Israelis kill 13 men after the fighting ended. And it's the aftermath of the battle that's the subject of the film and the debate. Some survivor accounts collected by Israeli and Palestinian researchers over the years say the troops separated the men from the other villagers and killed them, burying them in a mass grave. Until this day, no one has an exact number of those killed, with accounts ranging from a few dozen to more than 200. Some Israeli soldiers who were there deny that any massacre took place or that there was a mass grave in Tantura. This story and the dispute over what happened to Palestinians at Israel's founding moment still fuels the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today. Here's Tantura's Israeli director, Alon Schwartz. I grew up in Israel in a Zionist leftist family. I was always active for peace. But I grew up within the uh, story that we were all told, that in '48 uh, the Arabs uh, ran away by themselves, basically. And I never challenged that. Until one day, Schwartz was working on a completely different documentary when he came across the story of Tantura and a 20-year-old research paper by an Israeli grad student named Teddy Katz. I started getting interested in the field, and somehow, at the moment I arrived in Tantura, it became apparent to me very quickly, according to the answers of the people from Tantura, that something very different and very drastic happened relative to the other places. So Katz told NPR he decided to explore it further. He went house to house to every soldier from the Alexanderoni Brigade who was still alive at that time and spoke to them. There was a very big killing of Palestinians. I can't give an exact figure. 
it hasn't really been established. Because at first I got a figure that 20 people were killed. Afterward it went up to something closer to 100, 110. Ultimately it came to this, that the one who buried the people was someone from Zikron Yaakov, he was Jewish, and he's the one who told me 270 people. Katz's thesis was awarded an outstanding score, a 97. That is, until the Israeli media got a hold of it. Israeli veterans sued Katz for libel. And as the case went on, he faced pressure even from family, and he retracted his claims, and then reasserted them later. Regardless, the university removed the thesis from its library and downgraded his master's degree. Schwartz went through all of Katz's findings about Tontura. He listened to dozens of hours of recorded interviews. I focused on the Hebrew tapes of the soldiers that were there. I didn't know what I would find, you know, I didn't know if he was lying or telling the truth, but the more we listened, we realized that these veterans indeed tell him things about how, how what happened, and some of them told him how they killed the civilians after the battle ended. So Schwartz went back to the veterans who were still alive and interviewed them on tape. Some guys took flamethrowers and ran after people and incinerated How many do you think you killed this way? I didn't count. I can't really know. I had a machine gun with 250 bullets. People went wild in Tantura. It was awful. Now, most of the veterans interviewed in the documentary say it was a few rogue soldiers, that it wasn't the entire battalion. One historian in particular that Schwartz spoke to, Yoav Gilber, is a professor at the same university that Katz attended. And he says Katz's methodology was flawed from the beginning. What is the relative value of different kinds of sources? Uh, I am uh, considered a radical on this issue. I don't believe witnesses. Another Israeli historian, Benny Morris, wrote an op-ed in Haaretz newspaper criticizing the film and its findings. He said some Israeli historians have concluded there were, quote, small war crimes committed, but not a massacre. However, the film shows Israeli military documents that vaguely refer to, quote, acts of destruction. And while they don't mention the word massacre outright in any of the documents, one of them acknowledges that soldiers did dig a mass grave. NPR reached out to the Israeli military, which declined to comment on this event. According to Katz's research, the mass killing happened in two waves. Some were forced to dig graves for themselves before getting shot. Others were lined up against a wall and shot one after another. Samuel Ali is part of the film's research team. And he told NPR his uncle was one of those lined up to die. But he survived that day through what Al-Ali refers to as a miracle. He said when the soldier got to me in the line and tried to shoot, the bullet got stuck. He kept trying and it wouldn't shoot. Survivors and witnesses know where the alleged mass grave is. They say it sits underneath the parking lot for a beach. And after reviewing aerial imagery from 1949, the film concludes that even if bodies were buried there after the takeover of Tontura, they're probably not there anymore. Still, the descendants of the victims and survivors are demanding answers. Motivated by the film, they formed an advocacy group called Tontura People's Committee. And they're currently campaigning for recognition of a massacre and asking the Israeli government to build a memorial for their relatives where the parking lot currently is. 
Jihan Sarhan is Rashid al-Ahmar's daughter and one of the members of the committee. She told NPR that one of her uncles dug the mass grave at the orders of the Israeli soldiers. It can't be that every time I go to Tantura, I see our graves under their feet in a parking lot. There even used to be a historical cemetery in the old village. They raised it and built a beach resort instead. El Ali is also part of that committee. And he says while they don't need testimonies from soldiers or the Israeli establishment to confirm the credibility of their story, this is information Palestinians everywhere can leverage to get a recognition of the Nakba from the state of Israel. It's so hard for Israelis to digest this story because it, it shakes our ground because we're taught that we're the, the most moral nation, the most moral army, and the darker parts are sugar-coated. And, and that's how the this ridiculous story of the, you know all the uh, Palestinians ran away by themselves thing comes to life. It's a propaganda that is not the truth. Today, descendants of Tantura are scattered across what became Israel, the West Bank, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And without even a recognition of what took place, they say their Nakba has been an ongoing catastrophe since. Lina Mohammed, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 429 and coming up, you'll get the story on an FDA proposal to ease many restrictions on gay and bisexual men donating blood. It's 41 degrees in Boston with the low dropping to about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, a cloudy start, then clearing, and Saturday's highs in the mid-40s. Sunday should be mostly cloudy with temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Retail returns can be kind of hit or miss. Sometimes we'll get home runs, and sometimes we'll just get a bunch of stuff that ends up in the trash. I'm Kai Rizdal. What happens after you bring stuff back to the store? That is next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A lawyer for the family of Tyree Nichols, a black man beaten to death by police following a traffic stop in Memphis earlier this month, are calling for the disbandment of the unit the officers, who are also black, belong to. That unit was supposed to stop violence. Body cam video of the brutal beating of the 29-year-old, who died three days later in a hospital, is scheduled to be released this evening. All five now ex-officers have been charged with murder and are free on bond. Memphis police are preparing for unrest after the video is released tonight. Nichols' family is calling for any protests to be peaceful. Federal authorities are unsealing charges against members of an Eastern European criminal organization for allegedly plotting to murder a U.S. citizen of Iranian origin. And Piers Deepa Shivaram reports court documents say the citizen who was targeted is a journalist, author, and human rights activist living in Brooklyn. Three individuals, one from Iran, one from the Czech Republic and Slovenia, and one from New York, are charged with money laundering and murder for hire. 
The Department of Justice says the journalist was targeted by the Iranian government for speaking out against the regime's human rights abuses, including about the continuing protests going on in Iran since the death of Masa Amini, a young woman at the hands of Iran's so-called morality police. Intelligence officials say as recently as 2020 and 2021, Iranian officials and assets were plotting to kidnap the journalist from the United States in attempts to silence the individual. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 28 points, ending the day at 33,978. The Nasdaq up 109 points. The S&P 500 up 10. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A future exhibit at Boston's planned Holocaust Museum will allow visitors to have conversations with a Holocaust survivor via a hologram. This week, representatives from the museum and the USC Shoah Foundation have been interviewing survivor David Schachter for the project. When the museum opens, visitors will see an image of Schachter, will be able to ask the image questions, and will get his answers in real time. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more on this process to document and preserve history. Schachter is 93. He survived four concentration camps when he was between the ages of 11 and 15. He tells NPR member station WLRN in Florida that sharing his story has become his purpose. This is what uh, I think I was destined to do. I want these children to become my mouthpiece. Boston Holocaust Museum co-founder Jody Kipnis visited Auschwitz with Schachter in 2018. It was that trip that inspired her and her co-founder to build a museum. Our main goal is that every student in all of New England makes it through that museum before they graduate. Boston's Holocaust Museum is slated to open in 2025. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. The MBTA's Orange Line will not run this weekend between North Station and Ruggles. Weekend Green Line service also will be suspended between North Station and Government Center. The shutdowns accommodate the ongoing demolition of the Government Center parking garage and some Orange Line repair work. Shuttle buses will run in place of the train service. More than 100 Green Line passengers got stranded underground last night. Three trains stopped between Kenmore and Government Center because of a track switch malfunction. T workers guided passengers through the tunnel to the nearest stations. No one was hurt. Service was restored this morning. Andover native Jay Leno's love for vintage vehicles led to some broken bones last week. The comedian has disclosed he was knocked off a 1940s era motorcycle he was testing. Leno says he ran into a wire strung across a parking lot. He broke a collarbone and two ribs. Just a couple months ago, Leno suffered severe burns from a fire in his garage. He was repairing the fuel line on a vintage car at the time. The Emerson College alum says he's doing well and will be working this weekend. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. It is 41 degrees in Boston, with the low dipping to about 30 degrees overnight. A cloudy start tomorrow, then clearing highs on Saturday in the mid-40s. Sunday should be mostly cloudy and temperatures in the low 50s. Then looking ahead to Monday, partly sunny skies and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Former President Donald Trump will take his 2024 campaign on the road this weekend with a rally in South Carolina. Now, he easily carried that state in 2016 and 2020. And Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, a South Carolinian and one of Trump's closest allies, is expected to support Trump. But... Trump's political fortunes in the Palmetto state are not a sure thing. Other state leaders are noncommittal, and a couple may even run against him. Here to talk more about this is Dave Wilson. He is president of the Palmetto Family Council. That is an influential evangelical group in South Carolina. Dave Wilson, welcome. Mary Louise, thanks so much. I appreciate you being here. I'll open with the basic question. Does the former president have your support for 2024? I believe in having a marketplace of ideas, Mary Louise. I think it's very important for us to recognize that South Carolinians know and understand the importance of the role that we play in American politics. So, so have so you not made up? Are. You have not made up your mind yet. I have not made up my mind yet. As a matter of fact, I really want to be able to hear from as many people as possible because that is a, that's an important part of the role that we know in South Carolina that we play in politics. Give a, give me a little bit of visibility into how this conversation may be playing out in the circles you're moving in in South Carolina. I I saw where Trump recently accused evangelical leaders of disloyalty, his word, for withholding support for his campaign and I'm curious how that comment is playing out among evangelical leaders and and voters. It's not sitting very well right now. It, it becomes very disingenuous feeling when you are said that you're disloyal because you're not jumping on the bandwagon right away. This is a one-year job interview, and we expect candidates to show up. Although I, we all have a pretty good sense of who Donald Trump is and what he stands for at this point. In a sentence or two, can you tell me what it is you would want to hear from him that would win your vote in 2024? I think one of the most important things for anybody to understand for South Carolina voters, especially evangelical voters, is that our faith matters. We want somebody who is going to be standing on the religious freedom that we have in America and wants to embrace that, not just give it a tacit recognition uh, in, in passing. Do you have concern about his electability, about his ability to win? I mean, setting aside what his policy or politics may be, uh, do you want somebody on the Republican ticket who has a shot at the White House? It's very interesting because I actually just had polling information come across my desk uh, of, of Republican and Democratic primary voters in South Carolina. And when the question was asked, would you think that we're better off with neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump elected, 54% of, of likely South Carolina voters agreed with that statement. I think you have a younger, uh, vibrant group of potential leaders for our country who have yet to jump into the race, but I think are standing right there on the edge and they're just waiting for the right moment to do so. I think you've got people like Nikki Haley, 
you've got Tim Scott, both of whom are South Carolinians. You just threw in two names, Senator Tim Scott, uh, former Governor Nikki Haley, both South Carolinians, as you nodded to, both reportedly contemplating runs for the Republican nomination, and both of whom were once staunch Trump allies. Um, What would a Haley or a Scott campaign mean for Trump's political viability in South Carolina? I think Donald Trump will have a core group of voters. I think you've got another group of conservative voters, though, who are asking a bigger question of where we're going to be, not for the next four years, but the next eight years, the next two decades. And who's going to be the next standard bearer for the conservative movement in our country? Dave Wilson is president of the Palmetto Family Council. That's a conservative advocacy group in South Carolina. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Gay and bisexual men have long faced restrictions in donating blood. Those prohibitions have been criticized as unnecessary and discriminatory. Well, today, the Food and Drug Administration proposed new rules for who can donate blood. NPR's Rob Stein is with us to explain all. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. So the current restrictions in place are what exactly? The restrictions date back to the early days of the AIDS pandemic and were designed to protect the blood supply from HIV. Originally, gay and bisexual men were completely barred from donating blood. The FDA has been relaxing that ban over time, but men who had sex with another man in the last three months have still been prohibited from donating. Advocates for the LGBTQ community, as well as blood banks and leading medical groups, have called the policy outdated and stigmatizing. Outdated and stigmatizing. So what is the FDA proposing instead? The FDA wants to implement new rules that focus on behavior instead of gender and sexual identity. Under the new rules, anyone who says they have had a new sexual partner or multiple sexual partners and have had anal sex in the last three months would be prohibited from donating. That's because HIV is spread more easily through anal sex than other kinds of sexual contact. So this proposal means for the first time, even some women could be prohibited from donating But monogamous, gay, and bisexual men would be allowed to donate for the first time in decades. Here's how Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA described the change during a briefing today. We are moving now to an inclusive policy for blood donation that's as inclusive as it can be, that we will continue to work to try to make sure that we have policies that allow everyone who wants to donate blood to be able to donate blood within what the science allows to make sure that the blood supply remains safe. Sex workers and intravenous drug users would still be prohibited from donating, as would people who have tested positive for HIV or are taking medication to prevent HIV infection. And what kind of reaction has there been to this? You know, it's been pretty positive from advocates, medical groups, and blood banks. The pandemic has exacerbated the problem of blood shortages. Here's Kate Fry from America's Blood Centers. The blood community is very excited about the proposed changes. We have advocated for a decade now for a move to an individual risk assessment model. So this is very welcome by blood centers across the country. She stressed that all donated blood is carefully screened for HIV and that testing has improved dramatically to ensure the safety of the blood supply. Although you just told me that this ban was originally put in place to try to protect the blood supply from HIV. Is there any concern about this move from a health point of view? 
Well, most of the experts say that it's it seems reasonable and the blood supply will still be safe, but there's some advocates are saying that the changes don't go far enough. They say some of the remaining restrictions are still unnecessary and homophobic, such as the prohibition against people taking medication called PrEP to reduce the risk for catching HIV. Here's Tony Morrison from the group GLAD. When we limit uh, and defer people who are being proactive in their sexual health, that stigmatizes them. Uh, the misconception is that people on PrEP are more promiscuous or that they have a higher risk of HIV infection, and that's, you know, categorically false. So his group will continue to lobby the FDA to further ease restrictions. And briefly, Rob, what's the timeline on this? The proposed changes will be open for public comment for 60 days. The FDA will then issue a final rule probably later this year, so monogamous gay men could start donating blood again for the first time in decades sometime in 2023. Sometime this year. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 2021 saw the highest death toll from gun violence in the U.S. since the early 1990s. More than 47,000 people died from gunshot injuries. Kara Anthony, with our partner Kaiser Health News, went to a cemetery in southern Illinois where groundskeepers were quietly in the shadows of the gun violence epidemic, burying victims, many of them children. A cemetery sitting high up on a hill is called Sunset Gardens of Memory. In one corner, everything is smaller. Picture gravestones the size of a license plate. The cemetery workers use little shovels when it's time to dig a new grave. We're in Babyland. This is Babyland. This is where a lot of babies are buried. That's Johnny Hare, ground supervisor here in Millstadt, across the river from St. Louis. His shift starts just after sunrise, and he doesn't stop moving until sunset. How long have you been working here? Oh, 43 years. <laughs> I just can't leave. Hare says he's more than a groundskeeper. He's a caretaker. When a three-year-old girl was shot and killed in the fall of 2021, Hare made sure she was buried in Babyland. Hare started adding small touches to this part of the cemetery more than 30 years ago to make it feel special. He built a bird bath and brought in angel statues that he painted by hand. I just wanted to put some color in the angel in the baby. The red on their clothes, the brown skin, the black hair, that's, that's all you... doing now. <laughs> Another longtime groundskeeper, William Belt Sr., says it was awkward to walk by the gravestones without acknowledging them, so he greeted each one. What would you say? Excuse me. Coming through, then I got myself together. It was new to me. The entire cemetery is huge, 30 acres. I've been walking this hill my whole life, so it doesn't seem very big. That's William's daughter, Jocelyn Belt. Not just her dad, but her brother and cousin are caretakers here too. In Babyland, parents leave dolls, little race cars, and other toys scattered on the ground. They just do things so differently in how they grieve and how they process the loss, respect their memory and all that. Gun violence is the number one cause of death for kids in the U.S. When the caretakers dig a grave, they feel that trend in their hands. These men collect data in their own way. They don't necessarily know exactly what happened. They'll always know that something isn't right, health-wise, medically-wise. They know when the gun numbers are up because they'll get a lot of shooting victims and things like that. 
The caretakers have faced two epidemics, COVID and guns. They did their best to keep up. Johnny Hare says many of the burials were for teens and young people who died from gunshot injuries. One time it was just every weekend. It was just a steady flow, you know. This one getting killed over here, this one getting killed over there. They fighting against each other, some rival gangs, whatever they were. William Belt Jr., Jocelyn's brother, is also a caretaker. He says the work can take a toll, especially as a father. When it's a kid and they've lived a life and then you see other kids out, like they might have been their friends from daycare or uh, school or something, and they grieving, that's just sad. But there's little time to dwell on emotion as the men do their work. Supervisor Johnny Hare says there's always plenty to do. It's a job that got to be done. And this cemetery, no, not, there's nobody else to do it, <laughs> you know. And, you know, you, you just got to keep it, keep it together. I'm Carrie Anthony in Millstadt, Illinois. And that story is from our partner, Kaiser Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448, and coming up, you'll get a conversation about police department culture and the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Also, you'll hear about Wove. It is a design-your-own engagement ring company started by two former Army Rangers. They came up with the idea while on combat deployment. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, family-owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. It is 41 degrees in Boston. Temperatures will drop to about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, a cloudy start for your Saturday. Then it should be clearing up after that and highs reaching the mid-40s. Sunday, mostly cloudy skies and highs all the way up into the low 50s. On Monday, you can expect partial sunshine and highs in the low 40s. Looking ahead to Tuesday, mostly sunny. Highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is, it can be turned into morning edition, wait, wait, or snap judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Last week, a group of New York lawmakers gathered for a protest outside Madison Square Garden. They said the way the garden's management uses facial recognition technology raises serious privacy concerns. MSG Entertainment, which owns Madison Square Garden and other New York venues, including Radio City Music Hall, says it uses the technology for security reasons. NPR's Manuela Lopez-Restrepo reports. It was supposed to be an evening excursion for her daughter's Girl Scout troop. But when Kelly Conlin, an attorney from New Jersey, attempted to enter Radio City Music Hall, she was taken aside and prevented from going in. 
Conlin was told she was added to an attorney exclusion list for the venue because her law firm was involved in active litigation against MSG Entertainment. Digital privacy activists say using the tech for this purpose sets a threatening precedent. What makes this technology so frightening is that it enables a type of tracking at a scale that was previously impossible. The ability to analyze that footage and sift through it almost instantaneously looking for specific people is what kind of ratchets the alarm bells here up so high. That's Evan Greer, the director of Fight for the Future, a digital rights organization. Greer and other digital privacy advocates have many concerns about facial recognition being used without any type of regulation. They say the technology is faulty, invasive, and proven to be less effective. Hannah Block-Weba is an associate law professor at Texas A&M who specializes in privacy, technology, and democratic governance. Facial recognition technology tends to uh, misidentify people of color, and in particular, women of color. It tends to misidentify them much more frequently than it does white people. And so I could see a serious concern about the sort of racial and gender bias implications of this kind of tech being used to screen people. The software works by comparing images to one another and to live footage from inside a venue, for example. If there's a match, the system will point it out. Sometimes it works accurately. Sometimes it doesn't. Greer recalls a case in Detroit where a black teenager was kicked out of a roller rink in 2021 after she was mistakenly singled out by facial recognition technology. And this poor young girl was thrown out of a roller skating rink because the facial recognition technology uh, effectively mislabeled her as someone who had previously gotten into a fight. And over the past few years, a number of black men have been falsely identified as suspects in criminal investigations that used facial recognition software, in some cases resulting in wrongful arrests and charges. In New York, MSG Entertainment's practice of using facial recognition technology to keep attorneys out of its venues has been challenged in court and the outcome of those cases could determine how the technology is used in the future. New York has given businesses free reign to use facial recognition in their properties, and it was only a matter of time before we saw owners using it to retaliate this way. Albert Fox Kahn, the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP, says his organization, alongside others, has been fighting to curb the use of this software in public spaces in New York and hope for a federal ban as well. The problem is that the political will, even though it's pushing for more and more constraints on how the technology is used, it's not moving as quickly as, as the pace of the technology itself. And more importantly, we see a lot of people making a lot of money selling this technology to the city and to businesses in the city. Some who work in security see facial recognition technology simply as a tool to help streamline everyday processes. Jake Parker is the Senior Director of Government Relations for the Security Industry Association, a trade group for security companies. It makes me think about, you know, how many times as someone subject to a restraining order showed up without warning at a workplace and committed violence despite the restriction. And unfortunately, this happens all the time and women are often the victims. Parker believes the tech can help secure public spaces like schools, airports, music venues, and other places that may require identity verification as well as make them more efficient. With almost any application of facial recognition, it is augmenting, it's helping uh, a human controlled process uh, become faster or more accurate. 
In a statement to NPR, MSG Entertainment said facial recognition technology was widely used throughout the country, including in the sports and entertainment industry, retail, casinos, and airports, to, quote, protect the safety of the people that visit and work at those locations. To critics like Hannah Blockweba, there needs to be a better definition of what protecting people's safety actually means. So we have to ask, well, who are you trying to keep them safe from? How are you deciding who poses the threat? Is that a decision that, you know, the management of the venue is making? Or is it a decision that the technological product is making? And who is checking that decision, right? Manuela Lopez Restrepo, NPR News. If you want to cut out or cut down on alcohol, there are more options than ever. The non-alcoholic drink market is booming. At a recent tasting festival for cocktails, beer, and wine without alcohol, tickets sold out. NPR's Bill Chapel went to the Mindful Drinking Fest here in Washington, and here's what he learned. Some people came because they quit drinking after having kids, or for health or other reasons. Some just aren't into alcohol, or they want to try life without it. Mainly, they came to have fun. Oh, people came with so much energy and so much positive energy. I mean, we had a line out the door which was awesome to see. That's Maria Bastach, the festival's creative director. For the record, she and the other organizers do not want to bring back prohibition. Well, the biggest thing is, like, I'm not against alcohol. Like, I still imbibe, but I just want to have more choices. The festival had plenty of those, from ginger old fashions to espresso martinis and sophisticated spritzers. Taking it all in was Leah Silverman, who lives in the D.C. area. I've never really been a drinker, um, and I just found out about non-alcoholic drinks. I honestly didn't know that they existed, but it's cool. As someone who doesn't really drink, it's fun to watch people make fancy drinks and, I don't know, partake. Silverman came to the festival with her boyfriend, Curian Thomas, who says he mainly drinks when he's catching up with friends or meeting new people. To him, having good non-alcoholic options means more people feel like they belong. With no threat of a hangover, the couple tasted around 20 different drinks in a few hours. <laughs> I, I tried this uh, Kentucky Mule uh, cocktail, which was really good because it actually mimicked the Moscow Mule uh, flavor of a cocktail that I usually try. So it felt really familiar, really comfortable, and uh, I like the spiciness of it too, so it was good. These cocktails use complex ingredients, like the bitters made by Carly and Ian Blessing in Chico, California. They used to be sommeliers at the famous French Laundry restaurant in Napa and even ran the non-alcoholic program there. Absolutely has changed so much. When Ian and I were at the French Laundry, we each at different times were in charge of the non-alcoholic program there and there weren't very many options at the time. So there's a lot of just juices and sodas and things like that. Um, and then now, five years later, four years later, there are so many options. You can recreate any cocktail in the world you want, um, which is so exciting for, for people. It's a whole new world for non-drinkers who now have a reason to look forward to seeing the cocktail list. Bill Chappell, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Orion with Women Talking, screenplay by and directed by Sarah Pauly, starring Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, with Ben Wishaw and Frances McDormand, now only in theaters. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. 
Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at MattressFirm.com. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Memphis, people are calling for police reform after the killing of Tyree Nichols. In the same way that we want to make policing better, the best thing you could ever do is to prevent a crisis in the first place. It is Friday, January 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. Economists say there's an easy solution to getting around the debt ceiling crisis, issuing a trillion-dollar platinum coin. It's a symbol of the money power we've always had but forgotten. Because the policy option that we're facing right now is that we are about to drive off a cliff. Also, you'll hear about fraud accusations against India's wealthiest business executive. Plus, you'll get the story on U.S. efforts to provide infrastructure in Ukraine. It's 5.01 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Memphis is bracing ahead of the release of video showing the police beating of Tyree Nichols, a black motorist who died from his injuries. Five officers, all of whom are black, have been fired and charged with murder and other crimes. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports the city's releasing videos this evening of what transpired after a traffic stop earlier this month. Tyree Nichols' stepfather, Rodney Wells, says the family is asking for calm when what they describe as a horrific altercation becomes public. We do not want any type of uproar. We do not want any type of disturbance. We want peaceful protests. Family attorney Ben Crump says it should be an indictment on policing in America. It does get emotional because I know what you're all about to see America. And as much as those five officers killed Tyree Nichols, it was the police culture in America that killed Tyree Nichols. Local civil rights leaders say this could be among the toughest nights this city has faced. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Memphis. Israeli police say a Palestinian gunman killed at least seven people and wounded at least three others at a synagogue in Jerusalem. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. This is one of the deadliest attacks on Israelis in years. Israeli police say a Palestinian gunman from East Jerusalem opened fire at a synagogue during the Jewish Sabbath. Police opened fire at the shooter and reportedly killed him. The attack comes as Israeli-Palestinian violence has intensified in recent days. The Israeli military conducted its deadliest raid in the West Bank in years, killing nine Palestinians, including militants and a 61-year-old woman in Jenin. There were celebrations in Jenin and Gaza following the latest attack in Jerusalem. The U.S. State Department condemned what it called a horrific attack. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. 
Tel Aviv. Things are definitely heating up in terms of further regulation of cryptocurrencies. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Wall Street's main watchdog group, has reportedly told registered investment advisors it's looking at whether they're meeting rules regarding the custody of clients' assets. Commerce Department reported a slowdown in inflation last month. More from NPR's Scott Horsley. The Commerce Department's inflation yardstick, which is closely watched by the Federal Reserve, shows prices in December were 5 percent higher than a year ago. Excluding food and energy prices, annual inflation was 4.4 percent, the lowest it's been in 14 months. Inflation is still running well above the Fed's target of 2 percent, though. The central bank's expected to continue its crackdown on price hikes next week by raising interest rates another quarter percentage point. Consumer spending dipped two-tenths of a percent between November and December, thanks in part to falling gasoline prices. While overall spending was down last month, people spent more money on services, including housing and air travel. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 28 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey says the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis is a betrayal of our basic humanity. Video that shows police beating Nichols during a traffic stop will be released this evening. The five officers involved have been fired and are facing second-degree murder charges. The superintendent of the Massachusetts State Police says he condemns what happened to Nichols, and he's calling for people to behave peacefully if they plan to protest in response to the death. Teachers in Woburn will strike beginning Monday if the city does not agree to its contract to the union's contract demands, including higher pay. Barbara Locke is president of the Woburn Teachers Association. At a press conference this afternoon, she said union members voted overwhelmingly today to authorize the move. At the end of the day, we just want what's best for students. In many of our issues, um, taking good care of our paraprofessionals, you know, paying them a livable wage. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've asked for things like phys ed twice a week in our schools. So much of our proposals are st- student-driven. Teachers in Woburn are also asking for smaller class sizes. City officials have not yet responded publicly to the strike vote. City officials in Boston have a new development plan for Mattapan. The plan attempts to balance community input, equity, and economic growth. WBUR's Rupa Shinoy reports. Mattapan is home to large black, Hispanic, and immigrant populations. The city's plan aims to help the neighborhood's homeowners increase their property values. It allows them to build some additional living spaces on their lots without special zoning approval. Tenth grader Tia Leach and her extended family live in Mattapan. She says residents want to see the neighborhood improve, but are nervous about being displaced. My family is like, why are they doing all this reconstruction? I feel like a lot of people are skeptical. But as long as we go through it slowly, and like show like this is not going to be destroying your neighborhood. We're just adding on to it. It'd be a positive change. The Boston Planning and Development Agency Board is set to consider the plan in the next couple of months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is launching a program to allow people to exclude themselves from sports betting. Gambling on sports will become legal at Massachusetts casinos beginning Tuesday. Sports books are required to stop anyone on the self-exclusion list from placing a bet. The program builds upon a similar initiative that's already in place for traditional gambling at casinos in the state. Advocates against problem gambling have questioned the effectiveness of such lists. 
It is 41 degrees in Boston with a low of about 30 degrees overnight. A cloudy start tomorrow, then clearing and highs in the mid 40s. Sunday should be mostly cloudy with temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank USA N.A. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Memphis, Tennessee, people are calling for police reform after the killing of Tyree Nichols. Five former officers have been charged with murder. This cycle of violence and calls for change is familiar by now. So what can actually be done to reduce police violence? That's a question that Philip Atiba Goff has studied. He's CEO of the Center for Policing Equity, chair of African-American studies and psychology professor at Yale University. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. There's a widespread belief that if you have a police force that looks like the population of a community, that will reduce violence. In this instance, the five former officers charged with murder are all black. So was the victim. And so what does the research say? Does diversity make a difference in police violence? So prior to 2021, I would have said that there's not strong evidence one way or the other. Um, And my mind got changed by a piece of science by uh, Bokarbaugh that looked at data in Chicago that were just stronger data um, than any other place that we've had, did an apples to apples comparison and showed that black officers and women officers of any race were far less likely to use force than were white male officers. Hmm. Um, That tells me that there is some benefit that's possible in diversifying police. But I want to be really clear. It is not the number one suggestion, the number two, the number three. It doesn't rate in the top 10 of things that I would tell a police department to do. I'm not going to ask you to go through every number of the top 10 list, but what's the number one recommendation? Use police for less. Hmm. Well, does that mean police are inherently going to be violent no matter what? And the only way to reduce violence is to reduce the presence of police? Well, there are a number of people who would say yes to that, but I don't think you need to answer that question with an affirmative to understand this. If my problem is I'm considering suicide, why is it that in so many communities, the only person who can show up is someone with a badge and a gun, at best eight hours of training in mental health emergencies, and whose decisions are, I'm going to maybe lock this person up, I'm going to maybe restrain this person, I might have to use force on this person if I feel threatened. Mm -hmm. That does not seem like the best solution to it. Better yet, someone whose major problem is that they live outdoors because they don't have a home. Why are we sending badges and guns to respond to that? I would think that the problem with being unhoused is housing mm-hmm. and possibly um, uh, you know, substance abuse and mental health uh, uh, issues because they so often co-occur. So recommendation number one is use police less. Are there recommendations for how to use police in ways that are not likely to result in violence? Give police more tools so that when they are not the right tool, they can lean on them. So for instance, I would tell you if someone's in a mental health crisis, send a social worker, send a mental health professional. In the specific instance of Tyree Nichols, he's stopped for a traffic violation, allegedly. What could have gone differently there? Um, uh, I'll tell you that in Ithaca and Tompkins County, New York, in St. Louis, Missouri, um, in Berkeley, California, um, we're very happy to have encouraged local leaders to end low-level traffic enforcement by law enforcement and to stop sending police when there's a non-fatal accident. 
Um, it turns out when you do that, you can just send the ticket via mail. Not introducing a badge and a gun to those situations does not mean we cannot enforce the rules, does not mean that we're going to see more traffic accidents. And in fact, it's going to inspire more trust in those same systems because they're going to end with fewer unnecessary deadly elements. Do you think police in this country are getting better despite these horrific high profile acts of violence that we see every few years or so? So you asked a tricky question because... I think it depends on what your definition of policing is and your definition of better. I have seen departments professionalize and drive down racial disparities, and I have seen that the number of folks who police kill has stayed constant for the seven years, eight years that we've been uh, collecting the data publicly and for my 15 years of doing the analysis. Policing is set up to do a set of things. It does that with ruthless efficiency. It is not set up ideally for community safety, because to do that, you need to do investment. And so there are people who would say policing hasn't gotten better, but it hasn't gotten worse because it continues to do those things efficiently. And there I talk about both activists and the chiefs with whom I work. When you talk to police chiefs about the steps that have been shown to improve outcomes for communities and reduce violence, do they generally endorse the ideas that you're describing? Do they push back? What kind of reaction do you get? There are very few major city police chiefs who should be taken seriously who won't tell you that we have failed to invest in certain communities, and those are the communities that they get called to, and they get blamed for what they do, and no one is at the same time blaming the corporations or the white flight or the banking investment in any of that. While it's fair for law enforcement to be held accountable for what they're doing, it is incredibly short-sighted of us to think that fixing law enforcement prevents the death. Because as much as there is incredible violence from policing and incredible violence within these communities, all of that is within the context of the violence of poverty and deprivation. And those are policy choices usually made by people who never have to see that violence up close. Philip Atibagoff is the CEO of the Center for Policing Equity, Chair of African American Studies and Professor of Psychology at Yale University. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ari. Take care. This next story has two former Army Ranger combat veterans, a detailed strategic plan, and thousands of dollars worth of diamonds. No, it is not a heist movie. It is the story of veterans turned entrepreneurs, as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. I'm walking through New York's Diamond District with two combat veterans who have started, what else, an engagement ring company. Andrew Walgamuth describes the scene here on Jewelers Row. Yeah, so it's, it's very kind of dingy, dirty. It feels like you're going into a pawn shop. Um, it's certainly not consumer-facing whatsoever. Before Walgamuth became an army ranger, he worked in his family's jewelry shop. So he can say this. And the jewelry industry as a whole already has this reputation of being kind of, you know, a little bit uh, slimy. That's because most people don't know much about what a good diamond looks like and what it should cost, says Walgamuth. That was true of his business partner, Brian Elliott. I personally had a very bad engagement ring first attempt. Elliott was living on Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia, and he planned to propose to his girlfriend, so he went to the nearest jewelry store. I was in a mall off of exit eight. And uh, I'm in there, I'm talking to the guy, he's, he's hard selling me, and uh, I smell Auntie Anne's pretzels waft into my 
knows right as I'm about to spend $10,000 on this thing that I, it's probably worth like, you know, a quarter of that. Um, and I realized like, wow, this is probably not the best spot to make this really lifelong purchase in this kind of halogen light mall in this crappy environment. And I, and I just uh, walked away at that point. This is common enough to be a military cliche. The young soldier home from deployment and making really dumb purchases at the mall outside the base. Another cliche is what Andrew Wolgamuth was dealing with on deployment. Soldiers who wanted to propose as they stepped off the plane home from Afghanistan. A bunch of rangers in my platoon that were at that point in their life where they wanted to get engaged. But they want this idea of buying an engagement ring. They're fresh off a combat deployment. And all of the wives, girlfriends, family members are standing there with signs, and they get to walk up, drop to a knee, and propose. That perfect moment. Except these soldiers had no way to get a decent engagement ring in Afghanistan, even by mail. The odds are, you know, not in your favor that that package is going to show up. But then word got around the Ranger Regiment about Wolgamuth's family business. <laughs> the LT knows how to build engagement rings. Lieutenant, or LT, Wolgamuth started arranging video calls with jewelry makers to design rings and then make very convincing duplicates with brass and glass to mail over. The real ring could be collected later, but the guys would have a ring as they got off the plane. And for a few of his fellow rangers, it worked. I mean, yeah, it was a once-in-a-lifetime proposal off the plane. They got the moment, a beautiful moment, yeah. Walgamuth came home from Afghanistan and got out of the Army. He was living at home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but he had zero interest in the family jewelry business. He did a workshop for veterans who want to be entrepreneurs. And then he was listening to a podcast. And so... I was like, I just listened to NPR, How I Built This. The I know, right? We're what putting a, that on the air. Yeah, <laughs> but the uh, Neil Blumenthal, Warby Parker. How I Built This tells the story of successful businesses. Warby Parker is an eyeglass company that lets you order five pairs, try them on at home, and then decide which one you want. Wow, like, you know, we did this thing in Afghanistan with these rings. Well, what if we built the same experience for engagement rings? Wolgamuth says he knew he couldn't send five diamond rings in the mail, even back in the States. The insurance bill would be crippling. But with 3D printing, he could make inexpensive models people could see and then revise before they bought the real thing. He called Brian Elliott, who was also out of the Ranger Regiment and also trying to get into business. I've been in a couple startups. So he called me and a couple days later, I'm on a flight down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to uh, to see how jewelry is made. That was two years ago. They're all online, so they weren't much affected by the pandemic. They call their company Wove. Some people make the ring a surprise, like the way they did it in Afghanistan. But Walgamuth says more people want to design their real ring together. The jewelry industry really has hardly changed in the last hundred years, and it's highly patriarchal. And so I love the the collaborative approach that we offer, kind of equal partners coming together, keep the proposal a surprise, but, but they also get to wear a ring that they actually want to wear. They're banking on this cultural shift, says Brian Elliott. You know, man surprises woman with rock. Now we stay together. Like, it's, it's like 2023 now. Like, the fact that both partners are involved is so much more equitable and so much more meaningful because like, that represents, you know, how they're going to make decisions when they buy the house, get the car, have the child. It's a collaborative decision. Elliot himself is part of that trend. His trip to the shopping mall diamond store near Fort Benning, that engagement didn't work out. But this spring, he's getting married and he designed the ring with his fiancée. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York.
thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and coming up on All Things Considered, former Soviet republics in Central Asia have a history intertwined with Russia. The legacy is reflected in many areas, including within subway stations. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up 28 points at 33,978. The Nasdaq finished the day up 109 points at 11,621. The S&P 500 closed up 10 points at 4070. In other business news, former Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito is joining the board of a healthcare company based in Watertown. Firefly Health says she will have a seat on its advisory council. Polito served as Lieutenant Governor throughout Charlie Baker's two terms as governor, which wrapped up this month. Before that, she held other roles in state politics for more than a decade. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhillFramers.com. It is 39 degrees in Boston with a low dropping to about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, a cloudy start, then clearing, and Saturday's highs in the mid-40s. Sunday, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the low 50s. And looking ahead to Monday, partly sunny and highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, Foster Youth, Public Radio, and the Arts. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Think you've had a long week? At least you didn't lose $50 billion. That is the story of Gautam Adani's week. He is, maybe was, the richest man in India. He's head of the Adani Group. That is a massive energy and infrastructure conglomerate in India. A conglomerate that was the subject of a scathing report this week, accusing it of massive fraud and tanking its share price. Here to tell us more is Sadanan Dume. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome back. Thank you. Okay, start with Gautam Adani. He's a billionaire. He is close with the Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. What else do we need to know about him? Well, he is the richest man in Asia. I'm not sure if he still is. The third richest man in the world. And, of course, the richest man in India. Uh, Very, very well connected. He's had a meteoric rise. His personal net worth before the scandal broke was about $120 billion, of which $100 billion was just uh, accumulated over the last three years. Wow. So very, very wealthy, very, very influential, and known to be extremely close to the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi. All right, let me turn you to the firm uh, that has produced this report. It's, It's a firm called Hindenburg Research. They are American. Briefly tell us who they are and what the report alleges. So I hadn't heard of Hindenburg Research before this. It's a small firm. They focus on short selling. 
So what they essentially do is that they look for companies that they think are overvalued, specifically for companies where they think the overvaluation is based on uh, some kind of uh, fraud or malpractice. Uh, in this case, they're charging them with a kind of ma massive uh, accounting fraud. And uh, what they do is they bet against these companies. And if their bet pays off and the companies, in fact, lose money, uh, Hindenburg ends up making a lot of money. And in fact, they've been very clear over here that they are betting against the Adani group. So this report drops on Tuesday. Adani shares fall off a cliff. This is in two trading days this week in India. Yes, there is a real uncertainty, not just about the Adani group shares, but about the larger market, because this is a very important conglomerate in India. And it has implications that go beyond the financial health just of Mr. Adani and Mr. Adani's group of companies. Right. Well, because we mentioned he's very close with the prime minister. Are there political implications? There are huge political implications. If there is one businessman in India who is most identified with Mr. Modi, it is, in fact, Mr. Adani. When Mr. Modi was sworn in as India's prime minister for the first time in 2014, he flew from Gujarat to New Delhi for his inauguration on Mr. Adani's private jet. He is very closely identified with Mr. Adani. Mr. Adani is viewed as a figure who is key to Mr. Modi's economic plans for India, uh, whether it's in infrastructure or whether it's in the media, which is something that Adani is just branching out into now. So, you know, the implications are not just financial, uh, they are also political. Has Mr. Adani or his company or his attorneys, have they responded to this report? Yes, they have rubbished the report. They say that the research is fraudulent. They say that it doesn't uh, hold water. And they have uh, said that they're exploring legal avenues and they may sue Hindenburg Research, to which the research firm has <laughs> responded by saying that they would welcome any such legal action. I've got to think there must be global implications, certainly implications beyond India for a company this big to have this terrible a week. Well, you know, Mary Louise, the global implications are that this is a very big deal for India, and India is a large economy. India is the third largest economy in the world. Many people are viewing India potentially as a counterweight to China. And if you have a huge setback to an extremely important set of companies in India that are really central uh, to the prime minister's economic vision, uh, it's a setback for India. And a setback for India on a large scale obviously has global implications. Sidan Ndume of the American Enterprise Institute and columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. The U.S. can't legally borrow any more money, not unless the debt ceiling is lifted. But it can still mint money. And that has some folks asking, why not just mint a coin to keep funding the government? Specifically, a trillion-dollar platinum coin. Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, have more. The notion of a trillion-dollar platinum coin traces back to a now-defunct blog focused on modern monetary theory. This is a branch of economics that argues that governments that control their own currency and borrow in that currency can just create the money they want to spend. The only real limit to this ability is inflation. The government is the issuer of the currency. It makes the money. And so in that respect, it has always had what I call nowadays a big infinity sign in its bank account. Rowan Gray is an assistant professor of law at Willamette University, where he specializes in contracts and financial institutions and the regulation of money. 
Rowan says the government could actually fund its operations without raising the debt ceiling, without needing to borrow at all. It could just create the money as it needed. The authority would come from a 1996 law that says basically... The Treasury Secretary may, in their discretion, mint and issue platinum coins of whatever denomination, quantities, specifications, designs, as the Treasury Secretary may choose. So here's how the coin would work. The U.S. Mint, which is part of the Treasury Department, would create a platinum coin with a face value of $1 trillion. The Treasury would take this coin to the Federal Reserve and the Fed would accept it as a deposit. Now the government can use that money to pay government salaries and Social Security benefits and whatever else. Ron says the government has always had the authority to coin money. But it's kind of like everybody forgets about this until the country enters another debt ceiling crisis. So what the coin represented was, it's a symbol of the money power we've always had but forgotten. I mean, it's a symbol, but it's also something that you are advocating for as a real policy option. Yes, because the policy option that we're facing right now is that we are about to drive off a cliff. But there are reasons why economists and policymakers are not all just furiously tweeting hashtag mint the coin. Gut instinct is that it is a gimmick. Louise Shainer is an economist at the Brookings Institution. And Louise says the economics of the trillion dollar coin are completely sound. For example, she doesn't think it will lead to inflation. The amount of spending that Treasury would be doing is no different than if the debt limit wouldn't bind. So it's not more spending. It's not like, oh, I'm going to just increase spending. The coin wouldn't actually circulate in the economy. The government would use the trillion dollars to pay its bills, just like it would have if it was borrowing money normally. So Louise doesn't object to the mechanics of the coin. It's the legal and political feasibility piece of this that really dooms the idea for her. There are so many murky questions about whether or not it's legal and would it be challenged, and that's just a mess. You wouldn't prevent the chaos in the debt market that we're all worried about from the debt ceiling breach. Even if the U.S. Mint makes a platinum coin, the Fed might not accept it. Janet Yellen raised this concern over the weekend when asked about the coin. Louise says that the Fed wants to stay out of it. Darian Woods, Waylon Wong, and PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529. And coming up, you'll get the story from Vienna on the world's leading research institution devoted to restoring and preserving orphaned musical estates from composers killed or exiled during the Holocaust. It is 39 degrees in Boston with a low around 30 tonight. A cloudy start tomorrow, then clearing, and highs in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. 
Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Memphis police say they will release body cam footage this evening of the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols following a traffic stop earlier this month. He died in the hospital three days later. Rovon Wells is Nichols' mother. No mother should go through what I'm going through right now. No mother to lose their child to the violent way that I lost my child. All five now ex-police officers have been charged with murder and other charges. Nichols was black, as are all five of the officers who beat him. Family attorney Antonio Romanucci says the family is urging a policing overhaul. They can't collect guns. They can't find stolen cars unless they unwittingly trap innocent people in this web. Therefore... We are asking Chief Davis to disband this Scorpion unit effective immediately. Memphis police are preparing for possible unrest after the video is released tonight. The Nichols family has asked that any demonstrations be peaceful. Israeli police say a Palestinian gunman opened fire in a synagogue today, killing at least seven people and wounding several others. Police reportedly shot and killed the suspect. The attack comes at a time of escalating tensions and violence. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in the area on Monday, and U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he is, quote, deeply worried by the current escalation of violence in Israel and the occupied West Bank, and that he strongly condemns the attack by the gunman. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 28, Nasdaq up 109. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Teachers in Woburn have voted to go on strike Monday unless a new contract can be worked out over the weekend. The Woburn Teachers Association made the announcement this afternoon. The union wants smaller class sizes and higher wages to better retain teachers and paraprofessionals. Woburn's school committee and mayor say the city's latest contract offer is fair and highly competitive. The city says it hopes to have contract talks with the union on Sunday. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts and punishable by fine last year. Teachers in Brookline, Haverhill, and Malden all went on strike. Governor Maura Healey wants to address a shortage of health care workers in Massachusetts. Today, she spoke with leaders in the health care field, including hospital executives. Healey says members of her administration already are looking into the workforce challenges. I think state money has to be a consideration. I also think it has to be support for the kinds of programming that are going to train up people to fill these positions that are available today. Healy says Massachusetts needs more nurses, respiratory therapists, and other health care workers. Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan is the new co-chair of the Congressional Cambodia Caucus. She represents Lowell, which has one of the largest Cambodian communities in the U.S. She's taking over for the co-founder of the caucus, who did not run for re-election last year. If you are a fan of sledding, and are looking to take your skills to the next level, then you might think about trying Luge. WBUR's Samantha Kudsia has more about this weekend's free event in Massachusetts. Wachusett Mountain in Princeton is hosting its annual Norton Luge Challenge this weekend. 
The challenge will introduce people to the sport of high-speed sledding. The event is really designed for anybody, and there's no experience needed. You know, if you think about it, not many people have luge experience. That's Gordy Shear. He's a luge Olympic medalist, and he's going to be teaching kids how to navigate the sleds. You'll expect to have fun and really gain a, an understanding for what's involved with luge. And you get to see a sled, you know, like a, an actual competition sled. Really, it's a, it's a learning opportunity and a chance to experience it all in one. Anyone 10 years or older can participate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. It is 39 degrees in Boston. In the forecast, low will drop to about 30 overnight. Tomorrow, a cloudy start, then clearing with highs in the mid-40s. And on Sunday, mostly cloudy. Temperatures reaching the low 50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I am Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israel says a Palestinian gunman killed at least seven people outside a synagogue in Jerusalem as worshippers were marking the Shabbat. One of the most serious attacks on Israelis in years, this comes as violence is intensifying quickly. Yesterday, Israeli troops carried out the deadliest raid in the occupied West Bank in years, leaving several militants and a woman dead. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us from Tel Aviv. And Daniel, what else can you tell us about the shooting in Jerusalem tonight? Well, Israeli police are saying that it was a 21-year-old Palestinian from East Jerusalem who came to an Israeli settlement neighborhood of Jerusalem and opened fire at people who were outside a synagogue. Um, Israeli media say that they were gathered there after Shabbat prayers. And passers-by were also shot. Um, the shooter then drove away. The police uh, apprehended him. There was a firefight and he was killed. And at least three others were wounded, including a 15-year-old in stable condition. What have Israeli officials said about this? Well, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, said that his government has decided on some immediate steps. He wouldn't specify what, but he said something uh, noteworthy. He said, Israelis, don't take the law into your own hands. We have the army and the police for that. This came right after his far-right security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, was at the scene of the shooting. Um, Reportedly, Israelis who were gathered there were chanting death to terrorists and yelling at him that this happened on his watch. And he reportedly said, yes, more Israelis should have guns. Remember, this uh, comes just weeks after Israel's right-wing government took office. Um, This is a government that's taking a tougher line against Palestinians. Um, And as for Palestinians, there were celebrations in the streets of Gaza and the West Bank uh, celebrating the attack tonight, including in Jenin, where uh, we saw a deadly Israeli raid yesterday. You mentioned that deadly Israeli raid yesterday. Is there concern that this could be part of a spiral of increasing violence? That is the fear that this will continue to spiral. Um, This... Yesterday's attack was the deadliest attack um, Israeli troops have carried out in the West Bank in years. Today was the deadliest attack 
Israelis have faced in many years. And, you know, this is coming after about 10 months of an Israeli campaign in the West Bank, uh, Israeli troops going after Palestinian suspects. This year, at least 30 Palestinians have been killed. So yes, a, um, a violent spiral is a violent spiral is um, is feared here. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to visit the Mideast this weekend. The trip has been in the works for a while. Can he do anything to try to calm things down? You know, Ari, it's really unclear whether he can restrain Israeli and Palestinian leaders um, at this time and, and calm things down. The White House has condemned uh, the attack in Jerusalem. But the Palestinian leadership has already said it's calling off its cooperation with Israeli security officials after yesterday's raid and, and uh, killings in Jenin. And Blinken will try to keep that security cooperation going. Um, but Blinken has a lot, of, a lot on his plate. He has a lot of long-term concerns with the new Israeli government, which wants to expand settlements in the West Bank. Um, a, a lot of protests in Israel over plans to weaken the judiciary. So it's a very chaotic time as, as Blinken is coming. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. President Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine is reviving memories in other former Soviet republics of their tangled history with Russia. Central Asian nations have not forgotten the multitude of people executed, tortured, or sent to labor camps during Joseph Stalin's rule. Yet the Soviets also left a different kind of legacy, as NPR's Philip Reeves found out while exploring Tashkent, capital of Uzbekistan. There's a game that the drivers of Tashkent seem to enjoy. You could call it a game of chicken. The city centre boulevards are wide and spacious, yet jump into a taxi and you soon see cars hurtling past, cutting across your bows with only inches to spare. No one seems worried by this, except me, the visiting foreigner. Luckily, there's a less stressful way of getting around town. Step down these stairs into the surreal underground world of the Tashkent Metro. The ticket hall is orderly and clean. My fare costs less than 20 cents. This is our train. It's also immaculate. Most of the passengers sit in glum silence. No one's snacking. Then as the train sets off, I start to realize something. I realize that I'm on a journey back in time to the days when the Soviet Union used art and architecture on an Olympian scale as propaganda to consolidate power, including in the more remote corners of its empire. Some of the stations we're passing through have marble floors and fluted columns. Some have murals and fabulous multicoloured ceramic tiles and vaulted ceilings and even chandeliers. They could be ballrooms. When it opened in 1977, this was Central Asia's first metro system. Back then it had 12 stations. Many more have since been added. The design of each was based on a theme. One, called Paktakor, celebrates Uzbekistan's cotton industry. There's no reference to the near destruction of the Aral Sea caused by the Soviets' relentless pursuit of ever larger cotton harvests, or to the industry's use of mass-force labour, phased out only recently. 
When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Uzbekistan became independent. Eager to promote Uzbek culture, its new government changed the names of some of these stations. There's no longer a Lenin Square. You won't see many stations like this around the world. I mean, this architecture is stunning. This is Kosmonaftla. It's an architectural eulogy to what some see as Moscow's greatest triumphs during the Cold War. There are these amazing columns that run the length of the platform, made from green decorated glass. Uh, and the walls are very deep blue. And all along the walls here, you've got big murals, big round murals, celebrating the Soviet space program. The murals are shaped like medallions. One shows the first human in outer space, the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. Another shows the Russian Valentina Tereshkova, who two years later became the first woman in space. Until a few years ago, it was illegal to take photographs here. These ornate stations were supposed to double as bomb shelters. Now they're something of an international tourist attraction. A gilded reminder of the scale of the Kremlin's imperial ambitions in the past. Ambitions that many Central Asians fear are being revived in the present. Philip Reeves, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You've likely heard a lot about Ukraine's need for tanks and other weapons as Russia's invasion nears the one-year mark. But the war has also been an all-out assault on Ukraine's energy grid, and U.S. aid plays a critical role as the country struggles to keep the lights on. Eric Schmidt from St. Louis Public Radio reports. For Elena Pavlenko, Russia's attacks on Ukraine have few limits. They are not attacking only the infrastructure which is close to the front line. They cynically are targeting all the infrastructure in all parts of Ukraine. Pavlenko is the president of Dixie Group, a think tank in Kyiv that focuses on issues around energy policy. She says every part of Ukraine has experienced power outages and that Russia wants to sever the parts of the country that generate electricity from the cities and villages that need it. For example, Kyiv region where I live, we do not have electricity for several hours every day. Pavlenko says Ukraine needs a lot of additional equipment to repair the country's power grid and advanced weapons to protect it from Russia's air attacks. This is where the U.S. and other countries have been stepping in to help, delivering billions of dollars in military, economic and humanitarian aid. In video from last September at Delaware's Dover Air Base, a half dozen airmen push a large stack of weapons onto a C-17 cargo plane. They secure the goods with metal chains before loading the next pallet onto the aircraft bound for Ukraine. These kinds of shipments happen nearly every day. We are helping Ukraine defend itself against the naked aggression from Russia. General Jackie Van Ovost leads the U.S. Transportation Command. It handles the military's logistical movements, including deliveries to Eastern Europe. 
the air defense systems, the artillery systems, know that it came from the United States, mainly from the United States, and about 25 other countries have helped. Vanovost says she works with Ukrainian officials to ensure they're sending what the country needs the most at any given time. She then identifies where these items are and determines how they'll get to Ukraine. Connor Savoy of the Center for Strategic and International Studies says the U.S. is in a unique position to provide the support because of the military's prowess with logistics. While other countries can replicate it, it's always at a much smaller scale. Countries have maybe three or four large transport aircraft versus the couple hundred large transport aircraft that the United States has. Even with this key advantage, Savoy says it will still be difficult to deliver the kind of equipment Ukraine needs to distribute electricity. We can't just go to like a warehouse run by Siemens or GE or some other large Western industrial conglomerate and just start pulling transformers and other grid components off the shelf. Savoy says these items can take several months to produce before they can even reach Ukraine. He adds Ukrainians suffering the worst of the outages may not be able to wait that long. At some point, it is a humanitarian crisis, and people will vote with their feet and try to find access to better conditions. But Pavlenko disagrees. She says she hasn't heard of many people considering leaving because they don't have reliable electricity. I have to say that what Russia creates with its attacks, including attacks on energy infrastructure, it creates only anger among the people. And she says more resolve to win the war. For NPR News, I'm Eric Schmid. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548, and coming up, you'll get the latest from Memphis, where this evening, authorities are set to release video footage showing how a traffic stop led to the death of Tyree Nichols. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Join us tomorrow morning on WBUR's Weekend Edition Saturday. We will have the story on a vigil this evening at the Embrace Memorial on Boston Common. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is scheduled to join local religious leaders in response to the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. It is 39 degrees in Boston with a low about 30 tonight. Tomorrow, a cloudy start to your Saturday, then clearing and highs in the mid-40s. On Sunday, you can expect mostly cloudy skies skies with temperatures all the way up in the low 50s and on Monday, partly sunny and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today on International Holocaust Remembrance Day, there are fewer people than ever alive who actually remember it. 
One is a composer who lives in California. Walter Arlen is 102 years old. He escaped Vienna during World War II and survived, but many Jewish composers did not. Reporter Tim Grieving visited Arlen at his home in Santa Monica. There's something elfin and even a little mischievous about the man who goes by Walter Arlen, who invited me into his house near the ocean, where he lives with his husband of 65 years. Arlen never made a living as a composer, but he grew up in a cosmopolitan cradle of culture, Vienna before the war. He was born there, Walter Aptowitzer, in July 1920. I grew up in an atmosphere of great joy. And great privilege. His grandfather founded a large department store there in 1890. And it grew and grew because he was a very good businessman. And there was always music because uh, my grandfather believed in having music in the store. And he was the first one in Vienna who had loudspeakers installed all over the store. Aptowitzer's mother played piano, his uncle played fiddle, and he was eight when his parents took him to his first opera, Tosca by Puccini. And it bowled me over. And that was the beginning of my wanting to be a, a composer. Aptowitzer took piano lessons and sang in school. He was praised for his talent and encouraged to write music. It was a happy childhood. Until Hitler came, and that's when it changed overnight. It was in 1938, on a Sunday, he came in, hand up in the air. The uh, sky was full of airplanes. That was the occupation of Austria. At the time, Aptowitzer was 17. His father was imprisoned by the Nazis, and his mother placed in a mental hospital. The boy responded by writing this piece. The title translates as, Things Turn Out Differently. Aptowitzer escaped Austria and moved in with relatives in Chicago. Others in his family were not so lucky. His grandmother died at the Treblinka extermination camp, and his father was taken to Dachau. His mother eventually died by suicide. In Chicago, Aptowitzer changed his name to Walter Arlen. He staved off depression by composing songs, studied music at UCLA, and became a classical critic for the LA Times. I also write for the LA Times, but I had never heard of Arlen until I was introduced to him by Michael Haas, a musical historian who arranged for Arlen's work to be recorded, along with many other Jewish composers. This oratorio, The Song of Songs, was composed by Walter Arlen in the early 1950s. It is music that could only have been composed by a Viennese composer uprooted and transplanted to America, trying to work out all of his issues. Michael Haas also authored the book Forbidden Music, about the Jewish composers who were banned by Hitler. And even though most of Arlen's music was written after the Shoah, Haas says it belongs to this unique, and uniquely traumatic place and time. You know, the, these horrible things that he had to witness and live through, and just the stories that he has to tell about just trying to get out of Austria, and the things that happened to him and to his family, the only way he could deal with it was to write music 
and then shove it in the, in the desk drawer. In 2006, Haas co-founded the Exilarte Center in Vienna, which locates and restores music that was lost during the Holocaust. The impetus started during his tenure as a Grammy-winning producer for Decca Records. In einer Zeit, die jetzt Haas recorded music by Kurt Weil, the German-Jewish immigrant who wrote the Three Penny Opera. Researching Kurt Weil, I kept stumbling across names from other composers who were just as famous as Kurt Weil, but they didn't have any kind of success after immigrating. Haas knew about some other Jewish composers who fled Hitler's Europe, like Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Korngold was a classical prodigy who got out of Austria in the 1930s and achieved fame scoring Hollywood swashbucklers like the Seahawk. But Michael Haas began to discover an entire hidden world of composers who either died during the Holocaust or who became exiles and either gave up music or, like Walter Arlen, wrote music that no one ever heard. The more we recorded, the more we suddenly discovered that the music had been, to some extent, also deliberately suppressed after the war, not because the composers were Jewish, but because the music did not represent a kind of post-war anti-fascist statement that society felt was crucial in re-educating, you know, publics after the war. Haas points to the music of the late Robert Furstenthal, who also left Vienna when he was 17, and whose desk drawer compositions forever sounded like the glory days of his Austrian childhood. He was the accounts auditor for the U.S. Navy, for heaven's sakes, in San Diego. And he said, when I compose, I return to Vienna. The forensic musicologists at the Exilarte Center have rescued hundreds of works by these composers. They've also tracked down their heirs and estates, more than 30 estates all around the world. Robert Thompson, president of Wise Music Group, refers to the Exilarte team as the monuments men of composers and manuscripts. But I realized that the, the missing part of it was getting this music out into the world so that it could be performed. Wise Music Group, which owns the historic publishing company G. Shermer, partnered last year with Exilarte to help resurrect this forgotten and exiled music in public concerts. Publishing royalties go to the Exilarte project, and composer royalties to the families and estates. Or, in the case of Walter Arlen, who expects to turn 103 this July, the composer himself. Over the decades, Arlen composed some 65 works. It's music that was trapped in the amber of his memory, music of a Vienna he dearly loved and was forced to leave. Professionally, Arlen distinguished himself as a music critic. So how would he have reviewed his work? My own music, uh, if I hadn't liked it, I wouldn't have written it. And if he had not survived, we never would have heard it. For NPR News, I'm Tim Grieving. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 39 degrees in Boston, coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. Low tonight dropping to about 30 degrees for Saturday. A cloudy start tomorrow, then clearing later in the day and highs reaching the mid-40s. Sunday should be mostly cloudy with temperatures in the low 50s. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has some big plans for housing and development. Check out WBUR's The Common podcast today for insights into what that could mean for the remainder of her first term. Search The Common on your podcast app. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This evening marks the release of video footage showing how a police traffic stop in Memphis led to the death of Tyree Nichols. Five now former police officers have been charged with second-degree murder. It's Friday, January 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. With egg prices increasing in the U.S., some people are crossing the border to buy eggs in Mexico, and Customs and Border Protection officials have been cracking down. The main reason we're here is to prevent the entry of plant diseases and, of course, animal diseases. Also, an Israeli documentary examines what happened to one seaside Palestinian village in the 1948 war. And a study involving prairie voles suggests that oxytocin may not live up to its billing as a love hormone. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden spoke today with the family of Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old man who died after he was stopped and then beaten by Memphis police officers. NPR's Asma Holland reports their conversation came ahead of the upcoming public release of body camera footage from the night Nichols was pulled over. The president spoke by phone with Tyree Nichols' mother and stepfather. The White House says he expressed his condolences and commended the family for their strength and courage. Nichols was pulled over on January 7th for what police said was reckless driving. He died three days later in the hospital after being beaten by five officers. Biden previously released a statement saying the family deserves a swift, full and transparent investigation into the death. He also joined the Nichols family in urging the public to refrain from violence, calling for peaceful protests while acknowledging that outrage is understandable. Asma Khalid, NPR News, 
the White House. For the fourth time in a row, Rona McDaniel has been elected by the Republican National Committee to chair the group for a two-year term. McDaniel, who will have much work ahead of her after a string of election defeats for Republicans in the midterms, beating back a challenge from Harmit Dillon, a California lawyer who's represented former President Donald Trump. McDaniels argued the GOP did its job in the midterm, turning out voters. She did not address the former president directly, but admitted the party has struggled with its nominees. A judge has released body camera footage and audio of the brutal attack on former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband at their San Francisco home. Member station KQED in San Francisco, Marisa Lagos reports the suspect told police he'd wanted to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage. The footage shows officers arriving and opening the door to see Paul Pelosi and David DePap both holding on to the same hammer. What's going on, man? Everything's good. Hi. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Tapap then strikes Pelosi in the head, knocking him unconscious as the officers rush in. Media outlets had filed a motion asking for release of the video, as well as a 911 call, security camera footage, and a police interview with Tapap. A judge granted the release over objections from prosecutors and Tapap's defense team. Tapap, who's facing federal and state charges, including attempted murder, has pleaded not guilty. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. A keyhole inflation gauge closely monitored by the Federal Reserve would seem to indicate the central bank is making progress on its efforts to tamp down inflation. Latest reading of the preferred measure of inflation for December showing it eased somewhat with prices rising 5 percent compared to a 5.5 percent annually increase the previous month. Consumer spending was also revised lower. Stocks gained some ground during the final trading session of the week. The Dow up 28 points. The Nasdaq NASDAQ rose 109 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says she expects that the video that shows the police beating of Tyree Nichols in Memphis will be horrific and cause pain and grief for many people in Massachusetts. Police in Tennessee plan to release the video this evening. Nichols died three days after he was assaulted during a traffic stop. The five police officers charged with second-degree murder in his death have been fired. Healey calls this a tragic moment in the country. I think it's important for us to come together in Massachusetts Uh, be strong in standing against police brutality and police violence, um, supporting one another and recognizing that this is a moment where people are going to need to grieve and also to heal. At this hour, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is with local clergy at a vigil on Boston Common in response to Nichols' death. The head of the Massachusetts State Police has released a statement calling the alleged police actions in Memphis clear criminality. Colonel Christopher Mason is urging anyone who plans to demonstrate to do so peacefully. Parts of Halifax and East Bridgewater are dealing with flooding after a dam break. Pond Street in the area of Robbins Pond near the town line is underwater. East Bridgewater fire officials say a 20-foot section of earthen dam in town gave way this morning. The fire officials say as many as 12 homes were affected by the flooding. No one was hurt. The dam is privately owned and repairs are underway. The MBTA's Orange Line will not run this weekend between North Station and Ruggles, and weekend Green Line service also will be suspended between North Station and Government Center. The shutdowns accommodate the ongoing demolition of the Government Center parking garage and some Orange Line repair work. Shuttle buses will run in place of the train service. A future exhibit at Boston's planned Holocaust Museum 
will allow visitors to have conversations with a Holocaust survivor via hologram. This week, representatives from the museum and the USC Shoah Foundation have been interviewing survivor David Schachter for the project. When the museum opens, visitors will see an image of Schachter, will be able to ask the image questions, and will get his answers in real time. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more on this process to document and preserve history. Schachter is 93. He survived four concentration camps when he was between the ages of 11 and 15. He tells NPR member station WLRN in Florida that sharing his story has become his purpose. This is what uh, I think I was destined to do. I want these children to become my mouthpiece. Boston Holocaust Museum co-founder Jody Kipnis visited Auschwitz with Schachter in 2018. It was that trip that inspired her and her co-founder to build a museum. Our main goal is that every student in all of New England makes it through that museum before they graduate. Boston's Holocaust Museum is slated to open in 2025. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. It is 36 degrees in Boston, low tonight about 30. Tomorrow, a cloudy start for your Saturday, then clearing, and highs reaching the upper 40s on Sunday, even milder, mostly cloudy, and Sunday's temperatures in the low 50s. Monday, partly sunny, highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The city of Memphis is bracing for the release of videos that show the beating of black motorist Tyree Nichols by five now former police officers. The officers, all of whom are black, have been charged with second-degree murder, among other charges, and law enforcement officials say what the videos show is inhumane. WKNO's Katie Reardon is in Memphis covering the case. Katie, uh, what's going on in the city right now? What's the feeling there? Yeah, people are grieving and in pain. There's a sense of weariness that people have to go through this, that a traffic stop from what the officer said was reckless driving has come to this. There's also a sense of frustration. And I think that people are just dreading seeing this footage. Uh, Nichols' mother, Ravon Wells, said today she's not watched all of the video and warned people, children, not to let their kids watch it. And a lot of people are saying that. There was a press conference today with the Nichols family and their attorneys. What'd they say? Attorney Ben Crump said he's never seen such swift justice like he has in this case against these officers. And he said how authorities have handled this case has really created a new model. Here, we can listen to what he said. We have a precedent that has been set here in Memphis. And we intend to hold this blueprint for all America from this day forward. Crump also said that the only way to get justice for Tyree is to call out what he said is an institutionalized police culture. And another attorney for the family said special units like the one that stopped Tyree should be disbanded. Memphis's police chief has already called for an independent review of that unit. And Tyree's stepdad, Rodney Wells, said he's pleased with the second degree murder charges. Tyree's mom said she really hasn't had time to grieve yet, but she knows Tyree is smiling down. He always said he was gonna be famous one day. I didn't know this is how he was going to, this is what he meant. Now let's talk about that footage that is scheduled to be released sometime this evening. Law enforcement officials and attorneys who've seen it have called it appalling and inhumane. What more can you tell us about it? 
Well, we know it'll be body cam and other surveillance footage. The video will be uploaded to YouTube in four parts, according to the Memphis Police Department. When it'll be released is not totally clear, but sometime around 6 p.m. Central. Memphis's uh, police chief, C.J. Davis, told CNN Today that she saw some of the video the morning after the incident and that she's never witnessed anything like it. You're going to see acts that defy humanity and a level of physical interaction that is above and beyond what is required in law enforcement. And I'm sure that individuals watching will feel what the family felt. And if you don't, you're not a human being. And we all are human beings. She said the officer's aggression is just unexplainable. They were riled up from the start, and it just increased from there. Now, the parents of Tyree Nichols, along with law enforcement, have repeatedly called for peaceful protests once the videos are out. What can you tell us about plans for protests in Memphis? The city has been bracing since the officers were fired a week ago. With the timing of the release this evening, people have had had time to leave downtown and go home for the weekend. Schools in Memphis have canceled all of their activities this afternoon, and other cities across the country are also getting ready for tonight, just in case. Uh, during this afternoon's press conference, Rodney Wells again cautioned against violence and said that he didn't want any kind of uproar. Please, please, protest, but protest safely. So we'll be watching for people's reactions when the footage comes out. That is WKNO's Katie Reardon, who is going to be following what happens after that video is released this evening. Katie, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. Whether it's toilet paper during the pandemic or cheaper gas or, most recently, eggs. When goods become scarce or expensive here in the U.S., many people cross the border to shop in Mexico. But it is illegal to bring eggs from Mexico into the United States. As KTEP's Angela Cocherga reports, Customs and Border Protection officials have been cracking down. Hundreds of people wait in long lines at this border crossing between Juarez and El Paso, Texas. After U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers check immigration documents, they ask people if they're bringing anything from Mexico, including food. No food, specials, meats, nothing like that, no chicken eggs, nothing. CBP officers have recently started asking everyone about eggs because they've seen a spike in the number of people trying to bring them across the border. Charles Payne is the agriculture supervisor at the Port of El Paso. The main reason we're here is to prevent the entry of insects, plant diseases, and of course animal diseases. Raw eggs can carry disease. The U.S. is already coping with its own outbreak of avian flu. That's led to a shortage of hens, higher prices, and more people trying to bring in less expensive eggs from Mexico. So the fact that we're seeing so much more we're assuming is a direct relation to the price that they're paying in the United States. It's like crazy. Brittany Betta says she can't believe the price of eggs. She was loading groceries in her car outside a supermarket in El Paso where a family-sized carton of 18 eggs costs about $9. And so many families, you know, depend on the eggs, you know, for protein when they can't afford, like, poultry or beef or fish, you know? So, yeah, it's hard. By comparison, across the border in Juarez, eggs are about half the price. 
In this supermarket, there's a giant display of neatly stacked trays of gleaming white eggs. Socorro Chavez grabs one for her cart. She says eggs are cheaper here than in El Paso, but you can't take them across the border. Though eye-catching displays like this one have enticed some to try. Along the southern border, CBP has stopped more than 2,000 people from bringing eggs into the U.S. since November. That's more than four times what they saw during the same period the previous year. Individuals risk being fined up to $300. You bringing back anything with you from Mexico? No. Back at the El Paso crossing, CBP agriculture supervisor Payne says trained dogs help sniff out food people routinely try to smuggle into the country. We get a lot of bologna coming through the ports of entry, as well as things like pork chorizo, ham lunch meats. Uh, we get a lot of fruit, uh, oranges, apples, mangoes, guavas. And avocados. CBP officers expect to see more of those coming from Mexico ahead of the Super Bowl, when avocado consumption surges. People are allowed to bring them across if they remove the seed, which can harbor pests which means you better make that guacamole quickly before the avocados turn brown. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cochurga in El Paso. It's known as the love hormone, but a new study suggests that label is misleading. NPR's John Hamilton reports on what scientists are learning about oxytocin. When romance is in the air, a couple's oxytocin levels rise. That's true for both people and prairie voles, mouse-like rodents that mate for life and are often used to study human behavior. Dr. Dave Manoli, a psychiatrist at the University of California, San Francisco, says prairie vole couples share a nest and even co-parent. One of the behaviors that's really, you know, sort of the most adorable is this huddling behavior, just sort of huddling with each other. They'll sometimes groom, sometimes they just fall asleep because it's very calming, and, and that's very specific to the pair-bonded partner. Decades of research has suggested that oxytocin is critical to that sort of behavior. So Manoli and a team of scientists did an experiment designed to disrupt pair-bonding. They removed fertilized eggs from female prairie voles and edited the genes to neutralize the effects of oxytocin. After that, Manoli says, they let the cells grow. So we culture them for a few days and then put them into what's called a pseudo-pregnant female. An animal that's hormonally ready to carry an embryo. The result was pups that appeared normal. And when these pups grew up, they formed pair bonds, just like other prairie voles. Manoli says females were even able to produce milk for their offspring, a process usually mediated by oxytocin. We were shocked because that was really, really not what we expected. And, you know, my initial response was, OK, we have to do this three more times because we need to be sure that this is 100 percent real, but also what's going on. Repeated experiments confirm the finding, which appears in the journal Neuron. Manoli says it's still a mystery how pair bonding occurs in the absence of oxytocin, but he says the study makes one thing clear. Because of evolution, the parts of the brain and the circuitry that are responsible for pair bond formation don't really rely on oxytocin. They don't need it. In other words, Manoli says... Oxytocin might be love potion number nine, but one through eight are still in play, right? There's more there than, than that one entry point. Manoli says in retrospect, the result makes sense because pair bonding is essential to a prairie vole's survival. And evolution tends to favor redundant systems for critical behaviors. He says the result also may help explain why giving oxytocin to children with autism spectrum disorder doesn't reliably improve their social functioning. 
there's not a single pathway, but rather these complex behaviors have really complicated genetics and complicated neural mechanisms. Many scientists who study oxytocin say they're uncomfortable with the term love hormone. Sue Carter of the University of Virginia and Indiana University helped discover the link between oxytocin and monogamy in prairie voles, but she says she never assumed the hormone was acting alone. The process of forming a secure social bond lasting for a very long period of time is too important to restrict to a single molecule. Carter says a different molecule called vasopressin also contributes to social bonding. And there may be others, she says, though she believes oxytocin is the major player. We can live without fine clothing. We can even live without too much physical protection. But we cannot live without love. Which may be the reason we can love without oxytocin. John Hamilton, NPR News. Can't take it back once it's been set in motion. You know I need you for the oxytocin. If you find it hard to swallow, I can loosen up your collar. Cause as long as you're still breathing, don't you even think. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 619 and coming up at 630, it's Marketplace. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed up today. The Dow closed up 28 points at 33,978. The NASDAQ finished the day up 109 points at 11,621. The S&P 500 closed up 10 points at 4070. Checking other business news, Boston-based Eastern Bank may close some of its branches in the near future. The bank said today it is taking measures to cut expenses despite earning higher profits last year. Eastern Bank says it expects the economy to soften this year. The bank has more than 120 branches across Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, and almost three-quarters of those branches are in Massachusetts. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to wbur.org cars, and thanks. It is 36 degrees in Boston with a low around 30. Tomorrow, a cloudy start, then clearing, and Saturday's highs in the upper 40s. Sunday should be mostly cloudy with temperatures in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The War of 1948 is understood in two different ways. For Israelis, it's the War of Independence. For Palestinians, it's the beginning of Nakba, the catastrophe. Tantura is a new Israeli documentary challenging Israel's understanding of the war. It looks at what happened in a Palestinian village called Tantura, and it's prompted pushback from some Israelis and calls for justice from Palestinians. NPR's Alina Mohammed reports. It was the night of the 22nd of May, 1948, when the Alexanderoni Brigade's 33rd Battalion of what would become the Israeli military entered Tantura. Rashid al-Amar, who was 18 at the time, recalled what happened in a 2015 interview for a Jordanian TV channel. She was sleeping in her home when she awoke to heavy gunfire and people screaming. There was a short battle between the Israeli troops and villagers. Al-Amar says she witnessed the Israelis kill 13 men after the fighting ended. And it's the aftermath of the battle that's the subject of the film and the debate. Some survivor accounts collected by Israeli and Palestinian researchers over the years say the troops separated the men from the other villagers and killed them, burying them in a mass grave. Until this day, no one has an exact number of those killed, with accounts ranging from a few dozen to more than 200. Some Israeli soldiers who were there deny that any massacre took place or that there was a mass grave in Tantura. This story and the dispute over what happened to Palestinians at Israel's founding moment still fuels the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today. Here's Tantura's Israeli director, Alon Schwartz. I grew up in Israel in a Zionist leftist family. I was always active for peace. But I grew up within the uh, story that we were all told, that in '48 uh, the Arabs uh, ran away by themselves, basically. And I never challenged that. Until one day, Schwartz was working on a completely different documentary. When he came across the story of Tantura and a 20-year-old research paper by an Israeli grad student named Teddy Katz. I started getting interested in the field. And somehow, at the moment I arrived in Tantura, it became apparent to me very quickly, according to the answers of the people from Tantura, that something very different and very drastic happened relative to the other places. So Katz told NPR he decided to explore it further. He went house to house to every soldier from the Alexanderoni Brigade who was still alive at that time and spoke to them. There was a very big killing of Palestinians. I can't give an exact figure. It hasn't really been established. Because at first I got a figure that 20 people were killed. Afterward it went up to something closer to 100, 110. Ultimately, it came to this, that the one who buried the people was someone from Zikron Yaakov. He was Jewish, and he's the one who told me 270 people. Katz's thesis was awarded an outstanding score, a 97. That is, until the Israeli media got a hold of it. Israeli veterans sued Katz for libel. And as the case went on, he faced pressure even from family, and he retracted his claims, and then reasserted them later. Regardless, the university removed the thesis from its library and downgraded his master's degree. Schwartz went through all of Katz's findings about Tantura. He listened to dozens of hours of recorded interviews. I focused on the Hebrew tapes of the soldiers that were there. I didn't know what I would find, you know, I didn't know if he was lying or telling the truth, but the more we listened, 
we realized that these veterans indeed tell him things about how how it, what happened and some of them told him how they killed the civilians after the battle ended. So Schwartz went back to the veterans who were still alive and interviewed them on tape. Some guys took flamethrowers and ran after people and incinerated them. How many do you think you killed this way? I didn't count. I can't really know. I had a machine gun with 250 bullets. People went wild in Tantura. It was awful. Now, most of the veterans interviewed in the documentary say it was a few rogue soldiers, that it wasn't the entire battalion. One historian in particular that Schwartz spoke to, Yoav Gilbert, is a professor at the same university that Katz attended. And he says Katz's methodology was flawed from the beginning. thesis was about 90% or so based on all evidence, which is good for folklore, but not for history. Another Israeli historian, Benny Morris, wrote an op-ed in Haaretz newspaper criticizing the film and its findings. He said some Israeli historians have concluded there were, quote, small war crimes committed, but not a massacre. However, the film shows Israeli military documents that vaguely refer to, quote, acts of destruction. And while they don't mention the word massacre outright in any of the documents, one of them acknowledges that soldiers did dig a mass grave. NPR reached out to the Israeli military, which declined to comment on this event. According to Katz's research, the mass killing happened in two waves. Some were forced to dig graves for themselves before getting shot. Others were lined up against a wall and shot one after another. Samil Ali is part of the film's research team. And he told NPR his uncle was one of those lined up to die. But he survived that day through what Al-Ali refers to as a miracle. He said when the soldier got to me in the line and tried to shoot, the bullet got stuck. He kept trying and it wouldn't shoot. Survivors and witnesses know where the alleged mass grave is. They say it sits underneath the parking lot for a beach. And after reviewing aerial imagery from 1949, the film concludes that even if bodies were buried there after the takeover of Tontura, they're probably not there anymore. Still, the descendants of the victims and survivors are demanding answers. Motivated by the film, they formed an advocacy group called Tontura People's Committee. And they're currently campaigning for recognition of a massacre and asking the Israeli government to build a memorial for their relatives where the parking lot currently is. Zihan Sarhan is Rashid al-Ahmad's daughter and one of the members of the committee. She told NPR that one of her uncles dug the mass grave at the orders of the Israeli soldiers. It can't be that every time I go to Tantura, I see our graves under their feet in a parking lot. There even used to be a historical cemetery in the old village. They raised it and built a beach resort instead. El Ali is also part of that committee. And he says while they don't need testimonies from soldiers or the Israeli establishment to confirm the credibility of their story, this is information Palestinians everywhere can leverage to get a recognition of the Nakba from the state of Israel. It's so hard for Israelis to digest this story because it, it shakes our ground because we're taught that we're the, the most moral nation, the most moral army, and the darker parts are sugarcoated. And, and that's how the this ridiculous story of the, you know all the uh, Palestinians ran away by themselves thing comes to life. It's a propaganda that is not the truth.
Today, descendants of Tantura are scattered across what became Israel, the West Bank, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And without even a recognition of what took place, they say their Nakba has been an ongoing catastrophe since. Lina Mohammed, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.